In a world where magic is controlled by law and government, mages are both coddled and persecuted. Corey Monroe knows she isn't a mage, and her best friend is. Reality isn't always what you know. If you are looking for an urban fantasy with found family, an education-based magic system, and evolving storylines, try My Luck by Mel Todd, book one in the Twisted Luck series, available exclusively on Amazon. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1048. Today, Nicole asks... This is a question for both of you. What are your editorial pet peeves? It pisses me off when the dog jumps in my lap while I'm editing. Sorry. Please continue to read. What are the most common either proofing or content mistakes that you see? Advice for avoiding them. Um, well... Let's start off with story tropes we hate. Mm. Since she is trying to write for our anthologies, and I've already, um, I've already grabbed one of them. Okay. She she wrote a good story for that one. By the way, if you want to submit to any of these anthologies, look in the show notes or go to everydaynovelist.com and click on the Open Vistas tab. Yeah. Um, tropes that we hate. Um, you know, there aren't so many tropes that that I dislike so much as... Or are tired of. Time travel, for me. Now, I'm more or less deliberately not editing anthologies that could include time travel in them, but uh, I hate time travel. I hate time travel stories because nobody, nobody thinks through the logic. And it is so rare, I, I can't tell you how close I came to burning the third Harry Potter book. Or, <laughs> or to throwing a shoe through the TV when, Game of Thrones, when it turned out in Game of Thrones that Bran could time travel and control characters in the past. Oh, God, yeah. In both cases, these people were not thinking about what they were f***ing with. Back to the Future pretends to think about what it's f***ing with, and it does so in a way that lets you know that it's just fun to go along for the ride. And so it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But genuinely, truly, and honestly, I have only ever read three stories that do time travel right, and they're all by the same author. All You Zombies, The Door into Summer, and By His Bootstraps, all by Robert Heinlein. And they do time travel right because they create unbreakable paradoxes. And a runner-up is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Because he goes so far into the future that causality is not even a question. But the thing that pisses me off about time travel stories is that nobody thinks of causality. For example... There's the let's go kill Hitler thing. So let's walk through the mechanics of killing Hitler. Okay. I don't mean like you're going to stab him or shoot him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what happens if you kill him in history? Yeah, okay. If you want to kill Hitler before he... Uh, okay, so in order to do this, first of all, you have to understand that Hitler was part of the Weimar government, and he was sent to infiltrate the Nazis as a spy. 
And as part of his infiltration as a spy, he caught, in, in kind of like a Donnie Brasco kind of way, he caught the eye of the dude that was running the Nazi party. And the dude that was running the Nazi party said, oh my god, this is a guy who's got the right kind of energy that I could shape him into a tremendous public speaker. And so there would have been no Hitler if Hitler had not been working for the German secret police, and he wouldn't have been working for the German secret police if he hadn't pissed off one of his art teachers and quit art school, even though he was a pretty good artist. And he wouldn't have been pissed off in general if he hadn't served in World War I in the particular unit that he served in, and on and on and on. So there's this whole chain of causality. But let's say that you cut it off when Hitler is assigned by the Weimar government to the Nazi party. Let's say you um, have him mugged on the way to that first meeting, and he dies in the street. Okay. What have you accomplished? You haven't stopped the invention of the atomic bomb. All that research was already going on. It would still continue. It would have come a few years later, but it would have happened. You haven't stopped the rise of the Nazis or a Nazi-like party in Germany because Germany was in a position where, just like Russia is now, it had to become an expansionist power if it wanted to survive. You haven't stopped the rise of anti-Semitism as part of German nationalism, because anti-Semitism has always been part of German nationalism since Martin Luther invented German nationalism back during the Reformation. So you can take Hitler out of the equation, and at best what you're going to get is a situation where the Holocaust doesn't happen like it did. But you would still have the pogroms and the concentration camps. You, might, you just might not have the extermination camps. You would still have an expansionist German military, and what's even worse is they might have won. One of the reasons they lost... Now, long-term, they couldn't have held Europe. They did not have access to the petroleum reserves, and their method for turning coal into petroleum was not efficient enough to be able to keep the war machine fed long-term. What they had to do is they had to blitzkrieg Europe entirely in about half the time it took them in order to pull that off. But let's say that you have no Hitler. What do you have? You have a German war machine that's headed by people who listen to their generals. So they might actually win, and they might actually hold the territory. And then you have a permanent German superpower on the European continent, and you have the U.S. and the USSR teaming up with nuclear weapons to go against Germany with nuclear weapons, because it was the U.S.'s foreign policy since 1890 that no power may ever be allowed to occupy both, to control the resources of both Germany and Russia at the same time, because that makes them too powerful. Okay, so this is not a problem that you have with time travel, but with poor understanding of history and consequences. Yeah. Well, the problem I have with time travel is the people that write time travel as a gimmick have a causality issue. There's only two ways to run the thing. Either you're creating alternate histories and timelines, mm -hmm. or they always went back. In Star Trek IV, they always went back. That's how that whole thing has to play out. And people handle causality really poorly, and it drives me bonkers. So I'm not editing a time travel anthology. And now we're really far afield. What are your editorial pet peeves? And then we'll get to, like, copy editing and shit like that. Mine is really just bad endings. Ooh, that's worth talking about. In depth. 
Um, and, and it's really hard to ID a specific thing because it's not a it's not a trope, right? It's not like don't give me time travel stories, don't give me uh, um, cowboys in space, don't give me vampires. No, I, I all of those things can work. All of those things can be great. I I see far too many stories where the ending's not earned by the story or the ending just sort of fizzles out. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the, the ending fizzling out is less irritating to me because that is like, can you please punch this up? But then there's the endings that just don't make any sense with the story that, that was being told or turned left in a really weird way and just like... How'd they had, get, they had, they had a twist. There? They had a twist that you weren't primed for. Right. Um, okay. So that reminds me of my other really big pet peeve, mm-hmm. which is actually it. It's kind of like the granddaddy version of what I just complained about. Uh, voice violations, point of view violations, mm-hmm. drive me nuts. And you can see this most uh, clearly when you look at kind of poorly done historical fiction or poorly done oh. science fiction. Where you have this society, this this fantastical world. It happens in epic fantasy, too. You have this fantastical world that has all these ground conditions that are different from our world. And yet, somehow, the characters, or at least the characters we're supposed to love, all have the same values, morals, priorities, and, uh, and general attitude towards what makes life good and what makes life bad. Mm-hmm. That a... Middle to upper middle class liberal person in the late 20th and early 21st century does. I'm sorry, but that doesn't happen. There are certain basic moral things that are common to all humanity, like people value trust and people value the ability to stay alive and people value their lineage. And that's it. Everything else is conditioned by an ecological dialogue between the humans living in a piece of land and the demands that the piece of land exert upon those humans. And the and, and not just the piece of land, but the inhabitants, the other tribes and the um, flora and the fauna around them, everything mm-hmm. like that. So you cannot have, in an ancient feudalish society, you can't have an enlightened liberal type of view of the world. Mm-hmm. Because... At least least if you're taking your story seriously. If you're taking your story seriously. People who think that way get killed in that environment. If you're doing parody or satire, those point-of-view violations can work really, really well. Because you can play them for laughs. But uh, it's I, the thing that I have trained most closely and deliberately on as a writer is point-of-view discipline and voice. And so I'm very sensitive to voice and point-of-view discipline violations. This means that a really well-written story that uses um, words that are 10 years out of step will throw me out. I have literally thrown books by my favorite authors across the room because they used words that were invented 10 years later than the book takes place. It made me so angry that this person expected me to invest in their historical fiction and they couldn't bother to look at a f***ing etymological dictionary. (laughs) Um, I call it failing the Wikipedia test. If you can disprove a basic premise that the story is built on, or abuse of vocabulary that the story is built on, by cracking open a reference book and reading the precy at the beginning of an encyclopedia entry or the dictionary definition, Mm -hmm. then... 
you've just lost me as a reader. I don't care how good a writer you are. So that's a big editorial pet peeve of mine. That doesn't mean that if you're not feeling confident about your ability to do this, you shouldn't send stories in to me, because as an editor shopping stories, I'm actually looking for very specific things for these two anthologies, and I am willing to work with and help fix problems like this, mm-hmm. um, because I recognize that I'm the anal-retentive son of a bitch here. Yes. <laughs> um. uh, let's get to copy and other stuff like that. Copy editing and, and, and continuity and things like that. Oh, continuity is, is, is a pet peeve issue of mine. Um, if you can't remember what's going on in, in the story and how things unfolded, and it's a short story, you have lost me. And um, another one is not taking seriously the implications of, of the ideas that, that, that you're dealing with. I can go along with anything completely insane and ridiculous as long as you're taking it seriously and you're following all the way through on this crazy idea. Okay. As far as copy editing goes, the one thing that I can't get past is the inability to parse. Okay. I, I didn't parse that. <laughs> Dork. <laughs> um, using the wrong word sometimes, that's something we all do. Having spelling mistakes because you forgot to run the spell checker, well, that's really annoying, but it's not going to kill me because I can just use the spell checker. <laughs> but if your sentences... And especially the flow, the flow between sentences and clauses doesn't, doesn't create complete thoughts for any reason other than your point of view's character's consciousness is fragmented and you are bringing us along for the ride. That's really going to piss me off. Um, you see this a lot with young writers, and I actually do not accept myself because some of my early stories were like this. Where because where there's a lack of confidence in the order that the information should go in. Mm-hmm. And so it's not in the wrong order. It comes out in no particular order. Mm-hmm. When it's in the wrong order, it's easy to fix because you can follow what the writer's trying to say. And you can say, look, in this, uh, on this page, the whole thing works if you just take this sentence down at the bottom of the page and put it at the top. Actually, usually it's vice versa. Usually they open with the conclusion and then sort of work backwards. As if they're writing an essay. As if they're writing an essay. Because that's what we're taught when we're writing right. essays. That's easy to fix. What's not easy to fix is when there is no flow to the thought at all. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing drives me nuts. It drives me nuts in sentences where the predicate and the subject don't really have anything to do with each other. It drives me nuts in paragraphs where the premise and the consequence or the uh, conclusion, don't follow from one another. When you're talking about young writers in this context, are you talking about people chronological who are, People age? who are new to writing right. fiction, okay. yeah. Particularly new to writing fiction. Gotcha. What about you? You're in the middle of proofing a really difficult book for me, so you should have a lot of pet peeves. <laughs> Character distinctiveness. Mm. It, it really bothers me when, they, when I can't tell who the characters are, even without the dialogue tags without the dialogue tags if i have to have the dialogue tags or if they're indistinct even with dialogue tags it just drives me crazy it's like uh, they shouldn't all sound this this the same even in a a group of people that are all related and the same age and the same 
social class, they should not all sound the same. There's two basic ways around that. Actually, there's one way around that, and there's two ways to learn it. One is to read Lester Dent's short story formula. He talks about tagging the characters. It's not very specific about it because he assumes you know what he means. But what he's talking about is giving each character a tick, a verbal tick or a behavioral tick or some um, characteristic descriptor that, um, like you find in the Homeric hymns where the, this particular string of adjectives is only ever used for this character. Mm-hmm. And then you just use those for the characters regularly so you always keep right in the reader's mind who's talking and who's doing what. Um, the way that I learned to do this was I watched a lot of old movies from the golden age of Hollywood, from the mid-1930s to the mid-1950s. They, the studio system used to have dozens and dozens and dozens of bit players on staff they were on salary. They didn't get paid for acting in this movie. They just got paid to come to work, and they would throw them in front of the camera to do a little acting job here, a little acting job there. Like a theater troupe. Like a theater troupe. And the reason they hired these people is they were all masters of the distinctive character. Most of them only played one character. They just played it in a lot of movies. Some of them did a number of different characters, but... They were able to create an implicit entire character history and vibe in a walk-on part. They'd walk on, they'd have one line, and then they'd walk off, and that's the only thing you see of them in the film, and it sticks with you. So if you're having trouble coming up with ways to tag your characters, because sometimes that's difficult, go and watch a bunch of movies from this era. Um, You will see people tagging characters in these little bit parts all the time. Like the, um, like the, uh, so we just watched The Big Sleep again the other day. Mm-hmm. Remember the uh, taxi driver in The Big Sleep? Mm-hmm. She shows up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And she's always got that kind of, you know, slightly May Westy, slightly uh, kind of ambivalent uh, bisexual thing going on mm-hmm. in that era, which is really impressive. And uh, she's fantastic. She's got a presence. Yeah. And what you're doing when you're tagging characters is you're giving characters a presence. Right. I think that does it for me. Have you got anything else? Let's see. I've talked about endings, endings, voice, and tagging, and continuity. So I think I've, I think I've covered it. Okay. Let's end on a positive note. Let's talk about something each of us, a trope. Pick a trope that you really love and that you don't have in any of your anthologies yet that you would love to see. Love to get at least two stories with this trope in it. Ooh, um, this isn't actually a trope, but I love stories that take mythology seriously. Okay. And the immortal one Ah, has a lot of room for for playing playing with with mythology. Okay. Do you have another trope that would work well for your dirty jobs? For Iron Fire Muck and Sludge? Mm, I can't think of any. Okay. The trope that I don't have anything from for either story, for either anthology yet, that I would love to have at least one of for each, mm-hmm. is The Boy and His Dog. Mm. Um, I am a sucker for really good stories about the relationships between a per- relationship between a person and their pet especially when the relationship is not an excuse for bringing some kind of god into the mix. I really love the amazing bond that humans form with their familiar animals Mm. and how those relationships change the way that we interact with the world. Okay. So 
I would love a couple boy and his dog stories. Okay. Oh, are you gonna write one? Mm, I. You have that look. No, I just <laughs> realized that th- that that is actually a trope that would work for uh, the um, blue collar work. Mm, for iron fire muck and sludge. Um, yep. Particularly, not. Yeah, particularly if if the animal is something like a dragon or a horse or uh, a pig. I I don't know something. Something bio like a mermel, something bioengineered to clean up industrial waste. Oh yeah, you know, but um, a person and his pet can work really well in 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 that. I kind of also like. I don't I don't really know how to describe the trope, but buddy comedies. That's I, the proper name for the trope. Yeah. The buddy cop trope. Buddy cop, buddy comedy. Um, the you like odd buddy, couple. You the, like buddyhood. Yeah, I, I, I like the odd couple dynamic. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a romantic dynamic or a friendship dynamic or a co-worker dynamic, um, I, I like the two disparate people that have to work together and, and they're, they've got something going that, that is like unique and different. I, I love that. Cool. All right, well, there's a, in that on a positive note. Thank you very much for the question, Nicole, and we'll see the you The Everyday tomorrow. Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions, Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2021, Artistic Whispers Productions, Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.